0: This week, in our first Sunday going into the new year, we are back in the Word. Um, and those of you who've been around for a while, uh, you'll know that that's where we are most Sundays. We most recently finished the Book of Ezra, and we were we were planning to go directly into the Book of Nehemiah because in uh, in the Jewish Bible, in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of kind of one chronicle. And so uh, we were planning on going straight from Ezra into Nehemiah. But we're going to give you a little bit of break from historical narrative for a while. And uh, we're going to jump into the New Testament and do something a little different. We're going to look at one of Paul's prison epistles. All right. Now, let me encourage you right here at the beginning of this new year to uh, really take the opportunity here. You're going to you're going to get in the next several weeks, uh, probably five or six weeks, you're going to get another opportunity to to get a a divinely inspired book of the Bible under your belt or, or more more rightly said, perhaps, uh, hidden in your heart, all right? And so in, the, in just about five, six weeks, you'll be able to look back if you stick with us and say, you know what, I've got Paul's, one of Paul's epistles now uh, hidden in my heart, okay? Um, <clears throat> we all love fresh new starts, so take, take this opportunity as we start the new year. We're going to start a new book. It's a, it's a great way to start the new year. In fact, we're going to start the new year where we started uh this church back in the school on every other sunday night with six people we're going to start it in the book of philippians okay and so you can find philippians there uh in your bible if you will and let me encourage you bring your bible i intentionally uh you've heard me say before maybe i intentionally don't put the text on the screen because i want you to bring your bible because you can't take the screen home with you i mean you could but that'd be large and awkward and we need it so uh Find yourself a good study Bible if you need help with a study Bible so that you can track through Philippians with us. Maybe this is your first time to go from start to finish in a book of the Bible. And so find yourself a Bible that you're going to keep with you, that you're not going to leave in the car Monday through Saturday and then find it under the seat somewhere on Sunday. But find a Bible that you can read throughout the week, a good study Bible if you need help. Uh, We can help you with those. Just find uh, any one of our leaders and they can give you a bead on a a good study Bible. Um, So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start where we started back in the school on every other Sunday night. uh, We were in the book of Philippians, and that's where we're going to go starting this week. Let me tell you how we're going to attack this because you're going to get a little bit of an added bonus as we look into the book of Philippians. I I hope you see it as a bonus. What we're going to do is we're not only going to track through the book of Philippians, but as we do that, we're going to help you to discover how you can, if you were to go it alone, how you can go through a book of the Bible how you can uh, more uh, more intentionally read your scriptures uh, if you are the kind of person who does resolutions for the new year uh, i would I would say it's a safe bet that many of you believers uh, put somewhere on your list of resolutions for two thousand and nine that I need to read my Bible more right and so um, let me just say that um, you're you're, you're going to get uh, you're going to get Philippians, but we're going to also help you to discover how to approach a book like Philippians. All right. We're not going to go into great detail. It won't be an extensive Bible study methods uh, lesson, but anytime we can help you to get in your Bible more, discover your Bible for yourself more and not just to sit under uh, someone else's teaching and you know, absorb the word, but that you can get in and discover the word for yourself. We want to do that. And so as we go into Philippians, we're going to talk a little bit about how we're going to approach Philippians, all right? And so today we're going to spend most of our time dealing with that approach to Philippians. Um, Let me give you the basic gist of that process today, and then we'll start down the path using Philippians as our model in the weeks to come. I'm going to keep it real simple. We could go a lot deeper into what we call hermeneutics, the study of scriptures, But let me keep it really simple for you. Let me give you a basic principle that is, it'll it'll really take us a long way when it comes to understanding how to approach uh, individual books of the Bible, particularly prison epistles today. Here it is, really simple. Start wide and then narrow your focus. Start wide and then narrow your focus. Put another way, use your wide lens first, use your wide lens first and then focus in to the details. Pretty simple, right? And we're going to carry that principle throughout how we teach the Book of Philippians here. And each week, we're going to kind of give you a reminder on how we are approaching the Book of Philippians. All right, wide angle, narrowing it down. A few years, a few years back, Kimberly and I had the opportunity to uh, to take a group of college age uh, students to Paris, France. For uh, not Paris, Kentucky, uh, but Paris, France. Um, been to Paris, Kentucky? It's nowhere near the same. Uh, Paris, France for a prayer walking mission trip. I don't know if you've ever even heard of a prayer walk mission trip or been on a prayer walk mission trip. It's really a unique uh, opportunity. We took this small group of college students and we went to Paris and we, we linked up with a missionary on the field there who's doing work every day, day in and day out. And we linked up with them and we said, what are your needs? What do you need us to pray for? And basically what he did was he said, all right, go into this area of Paris today, sightsee as much as you want, but Understand that here are some things that we're trying to do in this community, in this area, in this district. And we want you to pray as you go, as you walk, we want you to prayer walk for these specific things. And it was kinda weird, honestly, it was the first time I did it, but basically they said, walk around Paris as much as you can and we walked. All right. We were we were tired of walking by the end of this trip. But they said walk around uh, the university, go to go to Sorbonne and pray for the students. Go to uh, go to Notre Dame and pray there for for this for this seeming darkness on uh, on the country uh, due to uh, past religious experiences of the people. Uh, pray for different things, and that's what we did. One of the one of the great opportunities we had was among all the other sites to see. Is we went to uh, some really nice museums, and we went to the Louvre. And at the Louvre, uh, many of you know there are. I don't know, thousands and thousands of pieces of artwork. But one in particular, maybe the most famous in the, in the whole building, which you could spend all day and not walk through this whole building. So that's how much art is in this place. But most people, if they're going at least for a day, they find their way to the Mona Lisa. And uh, so we did that. We got in there and we looked around. We saw a whole bunch of different things. And we got to the Mona Lisa. And number one, I thought the Mona Lisa was going to be, you know, substantial at least in size. It's maybe a 10 by 13, and so you get there, and it's kind of got this whole room, uh, you know, sectioned off for it. And you get there, and it's just this little, you know, 8 by 10 picture. And it, it kind of, it was anticlimactic for me a little bit because, you know, it's such a build up. But then we go, and we see the Mona Lisa. Um, a couple of things I realized, aside from it being very small, and that if you walk from side to side, her eyes kind of follow you, and that was a little weird. Uh, one of the things I noticed was, is that you really, when looking at a great piece of art, At least at that first encounter, you don't really notice all the detail. In fact, it really doesn't even occur to you at first glance, the detail. What you see is, on a whole, this this beautiful work of great art. And throughout the Louvre, I just, I just remember going from, from picture to picture. And some of these paintings are larger than, this, than one wall here. If you've been, you know what I'm talking about. And they kind of overwhelm you. But even in portraits that are, that are larger than life, uh, you don't really at first notice the details. What you notice is the grand beauty. From a 10 by 13 to a portrait as big as this church, you notice, you notice just the overall beauty. Later on, as if you stand there long enough, and you get past the initial beauty, you start to, you start to see a little bit more detail. You start to notice the, the intricacy of the art itself. The, lots of great sculptures, and you just could stand there all day looking at any one of them. That's part of the reason why you don't get through the whole place, is that you could stand there and look at one portrait or one, uh, one piece of art all day and just, just take in the depth of work that it took for some of these things, like any great work of art, or for that matter, um, those of you who know me uh, as a, a wannabe iron chef, like any great uh, gourmet meal, the first thing that you want to do is you want to you want to see you just want to see it for what it is you want to you want to taste that meal for what it is before you start to dissect and and contemplate what are the ingredients what's actually in this what spices are used in this in this gourmet dish you just at first you just enjoy it like any great work of art you enjoy the collection of details before trying to figure out the exact ingredients that's what i'm getting to when i say that we need to use our wide angle lens when looking at scripture we need to use our wide angle lens first and then slowly begin to focus in we want to enjoy it for the beauty it has uh, on the surface, the plain beauty that it has, without dissecting it immediately. And that's true in any time that we dive into our Bible on our own or collectively here. And so let me give you a three-step process and, into how we're going to look into the book of Philippians. It's not a long book. It won't take us very long, but let me give you a uh, sort of a three-step process that we're going to use to examine this book, step number one, we're going to look at the big picture basics, you could call them. We're just going to we're just going to see the Mona Lisa for what it is, and we're going to say wow, and we're going to enjoy the Mona Lisa without trying to find the paint by number lines underneath. Okay, we're just going to enjoy it for its for its immediate beauty. We're going to do that by looking at what I call just these big picture basics. We're going to We're going to ask simple questions, simple big picture questions. As we first approach Philippians, just as you first approach a great work of art or even a gourmet meal, you kind of want to know, well, who did this? So we're just going to ask some big picture basic questions like the who, the what, the when, the where, the why. And seemingly those would be specifics, but they're, they're really generalities. They're really preliminary, big picture information that helps us as we ever approach it. If you know nothing about the Mona Lisa, frankly, in all the portraits and all the artwork in the Louvre, you might walk right by it if it wasn't so, so well-known, if you didn't have some sort of information about it. You'd probably dismiss it and walk to some grander portrait. So we're going to look at some of those big picture basics. Uh, for some of us, getting into the Bible is kind of like going to uh, the Nutcracker Ballet for the first time. Uh, I did this. Uh, a couple of years ago, for Kimberly, around Christmas, the Nutcracker usually comes out down in the Fox, and I thought it'd well, be nice, romantic. Uh, she would enjoy it, and so I, I I bit the bullet, got some Nutcracker ballet tickets, and I really had no idea what to expect. I was excited to go to the Fox and just see the beauty of the Fox, et cetera, and you know, to see an elaborate. I appreciate I appreciate the work that goes into these sort of things, but I'm not a big ballet, uh, opera kind of guy. Uh, but we did that, and uh, I got there, and. I remember thinking early on into the first act, I wish I knew something about this ballet because I was completely and utterly and totally lost. I wish I just had a gist about what this thing is about. Because you got people frolicking around, dancing around, men in tights, they're doing all this different stuff, and you, 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 you automatically feel like you're an outsider, If you don't know anything about it, you're sort of lost. And some of you feel when you go to Scripture a little bit like that. You just kind of feel a little bit lost. If you know when you go to the Nutcracker that it's sort of this princess and frog prince kind of story and it's set on Christmas Eve, that helps. And this this girl she gets these life size uh dolls and one of them is this military nutcracker figure that turns into a real person and then these mice attack and the king mouse is is trying to attack and the nutcracker kinda of saves the princess. If you understand some of that, you can just follow a little bit better. Alright? And I'll tell you I had to read up on that just yesterday because I saw it and I went away and I still didn't know what it was about. But in order to give you the illustration, I read up on it, and, and that's what I got from it. But it, now, if you went, you would know a little better. You could follow a little better. Listen, luckily for us, although we feel like that when we go into Scripture on our own, that we're kind of lost in the mix. We don't know where to start. We don't know, you know how far to go. We don't know how to approach Scripture. We don't really know what's going on, etc. Luckily for us, we have the added benefit as believers that we have the Holy Spirit, sort of the, the producer of the whole thing, Sitting right next to us in our theater seat, whispering in our ear, here's what's going on, all right? So just know, as confusing sometimes as you may think it is, as lost sometimes you may think it is, understand that you have the benefit of the Holy Spirit to speak to you and guide you. So you're not, you're not treading water without some sort of flotation device when you dive into Scripture, okay? We have a great added benefit through the Holy Spirit. And so let that be an encouragement to you that if you've jumped in and you, and you didn't stay long, jump back in, Okay? And as you jump in, pray that the Holy Spirit would help you. Pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten you, would guide you, would help you to see, would help you to see the the wide angle picture and then help you to narrow in because he will. He will do that. In addition, our our approach helps us. Our approach helps us not to be lost. Using the wide angle lens first will give us a good start. And then here's what we're going to do. The second part of this process is we're going to narrow in just a little bit, but not too detailed. And we're going to just take the big chunks of Ephesians or Philippians. We're going to take the big chunks of Philippians and we're going to try and find the tone of the letter. We're going to try and find uh, maybe the, the purpose or the purposes of why the author wrote the book or the letter to a specific people, et cetera. We're going to try and look for just some of those, some of those uh, general purpose and tone type items to help guide us through. We're going to, we're going to try and follow them through the general scheme of the letter. Because the majority of the time you can find a tone or a purpose on the part of the author that'll help it 'll help weave itself through the entire letter, and you can see a little bit closer, a little more detail as you move forward into the text we 're going to grab some of these big chunks now we 're not going to as we do that we 're still not going to get bogged down into all the details because here 's what especially Paul is great at doing he, he is he is extremely uh, extremely uh, talented at using principles to teach his grander lesson. And those principles sometimes are magnificent in and of themselves. And Philippians has a bunch of them. And so the third part of our process is we examine Philippians. We're going to start wide. We're going to look at the big picture, the who's, the what's, the when's, what is this for, where did it come from? You know, where is Philippi, et cetera. We're going to talk about that sort of stuff. We're going to narrow in a little bit. We're going to go into the text. We're going to take the big chunks, try and find the general theme, the general purpose. And we're going to walk through it that way. And then the last thing we're going to do is we're going to come back and we're going to say, Now, you remember when Paul said this to teach his overall lesson or the overall purpose of this? Let's let's look a little harder at this because there are some passages in particular that Philippians is well known for. Many of you have memorized some of these passages, but you don't really know how they fit into the grand scheme of the letter itself. And so in the end, we're going to come back and we're going to examine some of those detailed passages. All right. So let's begin with the big picture. The time we have remaining, we're going to to jump in here, and we're not going to go to Philippians. We're not going to go to Philippians. Let me just give you a few generalities here, a few things. And again, uh, these are questions that you're going to want to ask yourself if you go into Colossians, if you go into Ephesians, if you go into Romans, any other place, especially in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. General questions you can ask yourselves. The title in your Bible is Philippians. Who are the Philippians? And understand that this is a letter, it is a personal letter to a people. The Philippians are a people. Not to be confused with the Filipinos, alright? It's a different group of people. The Philippians are a group of people, alright? General information. You need to know that, alright? Uh, they are called Philippians because they're from a place called Philippi. right. It's an actual historical place called Philippi. It's called Philippi because it was named after King Alexander, King Philippi or King Philip, excuse me, who was, you'll know him because he's the father of Alexander the Great. Rusty has a coin picture of him there. Uh, I don't know how accurate that is, but that's said to be uh, King Philip, the founder of Philippi. All right. Just good information to know. He is Alexander the Great's father. Uh, It is at the northern end of the Aegean Sea, Rusty, put our map up for us. This—I wish I had one of those little light beam things. I need one of those. Uh, this center body of water here. At the lower end, we have the Mediterranean Sea. That upper body of water there—that's the Aegean, uh, Aegean, or Aegean Sea. Okay. On the left side there, you've got Greece. Uh, Modern-day Turkey over here on the north right side. Uh, above to the left, you'd have the Macedonia area, which uh, area, which is also uh, a biblical. Uh, noted place. Um, Philippi is basically top center on the coastline there. You see three or four islands there at the top of that area. Philippi is that little area that kind of juts in. There's a port there and Philippi is about 10 miles inland from that port. All right. So that's where Philippi is. That's where Philippi comes from. And uh, we also need to know, just very basically, that Paul wrote this letter. And we'll, as we jump into verse 1 next week, you'll, you'll get more on this. But Paul wrote this, and it is said to be, by most scholars, one of his most personal letters. One of his most heartfelt, encouraging personal letters to any given church. And that's who it's to, by the way. It is a personal letter, as if I were to write you a letter, and it were to come in the mail. It is a personal letter. From the Apostle Paul to a specific group of people in a specific place at a specific time. And they are a new church. A church, by the way, that he helped to found on what is called his second missionary journey. I don't think Paul called it his second missionary journey. He just went out and shared the gospel and started churches. But historically, we call it his second missionary journey. On his second missionary journey, Paul lands in Philippi. And he starts sharing the gospel, and a church is born, a church is planted there in that in that foreign country. Um, it is, as I said, this letter, a very personal letter, because he has a very personal relationship with these people, as we're going to see here in just a moment. Um, we're fortunate to have a record of his visit to Philippi in Scripture, not in Philippians, but we have a record of Paul's visit to Philippi in the book of Acts. Many of you know that the book of Acts is sort of a sort of a history of New Testament movements of the apostles. All right? In Acts 16, and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning, so go ahead and turn to Acts 16. In Acts 16, we have a narrative record of Paul's trip on his second missionary journey to this town in, uh, on the northern end of the Aegean Sea. And um, in Acts 16, we benefit because we have, we have a chronicle of this encounter. He wasn't there many days, but the time he was there, he did some great work. We're going to start in Acts 16, 11. And again, we're trying to get a big picture glimpse before we go into Philippians. We want to know just a little bit about it, who the author is, where this book comes from, why would he even write to these people, what is his relationship with them. We're, we're looking at those big picture items so that when we jump in, we can identify a little better as we start to read chapter one, verse one of Philippians. So let's look at this account in Acts 16. We'll start in verse 11. And here's why I want to do this. I want you to get just a glimpse of the people, the culture, the setting, um, etc. of this place that Paul would later write a letter to a church in this place, okay? So we're not going to go into great detail. There are, some, there are some very famous stories in this section of uh, Acts 16. Um, we're not going to go into great detail. Here's what I want you to do. I want you, as we read through this, I'll point out a few different things that help to inform the story. But I want you just to get a, a flavor of this people, this place that Paul would go and plant a church, what kind of atmosphere would it be for the new believers? What would they have to deal with? What would their struggles be? Etc. right? So as we go into this, you're looking for atmosphere so that when we get into the book of Philippians, you can identify a little better with the people and the place. Acts 16, verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, Rusty, put the map back up for just a second putting out to sea from Troas. Troas is here. If you go around the Aegean Sea on the coast, it's about halfway down on the right, uh, inland a little bit. Uh, he is going to travel from Troas. And what does it say? He is going to run straight course to an Island called Samothrace. Samothrace is, if you see the top three islands there, there's really a cluster of four islands in the top of the Aegean Sea. It is the top right Island, the smallest one there. So he's going to bypass that first island as he comes off the coast here on the east side of the GNC. He's going to bypass, and he says he takes a straight shot to that island that is noted here in Acts 16.11 as Samothrace. It was a a one-day journey by boat, and they stopped there because it was a well-populated island. They could resupply, and then they could head out from there on their next leg of the trip. The next leg of the trip, the end of verse 11, on the day following to Neapolis. Neapolis is the port city. If you look at a little indention there at the very top, there's a, the highest little island there off the coast. The port city, uh, the little indention to the top left of that island, that is Neapolis. It's the port city that you would go through to get to Philippi. Remember, Philippi is not on the coast. It's about 10 miles off the coast. That's a very famous port because some very famous uh, and well-traveled roads come right into that port. All the way from there, all the way back west towards Italy. And so that's where he is. He's coming into Neapolis. Verse 12, and from there to Philippi, about 10 miles inland, which is a leading city, Paul says. uh, Actually, this would be Luke, the author of Acts, uh, the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Now, it wasn't the capital city by most uh, accounts, but it was one of what would be called a leading city. It was a bustling city. It was a busy city, although it was a very small city. It was a city that had a great impact on the area and the region. It was also, he says in verse 12, a Roman colony. Now that will be very important. As we start to get an idea of what this place is and who the people are, it's important to note, as the author notes here, that it is a Roman colony. And I'll explain a little bit later why that might be important. And we were staying in this city for some days, 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women whom had assembled. Now, it was Paul's custom when he went into a new city that on the first Sabbath that he's there to find a synagogue of Jews and to go and hope they give him a hearing, hope they let him teach and bring grace to the Jewish culture, which was awaiting the Messiah. And so, as was his custom, he would go to look for a place of prayer, but in Philippi, there was no synagogue. To have a synagogue, you would need at least ten Jewish men to establish a synagogue. You could have a thousand Jewish women, and they still could not establish a synagogue. Apparently, where there were not enough men to establish a place of prayer in the form of a synagogue in Philippi. So what do you do? You have to go on the outskirts. And so that's what he does. When there was no synagogue, they went outside the gate. They also went outside the gate. That gives us an indication to the reception of this religion in the culture. It is a Roman colony. And as it is a Roman colony, you don't get to practice whatever religion you want to practice, at least freely, that is. As a Roman colony, you have to support the religion of the Roman in charge or suffer the consequences. Now, they would allow you to go outside the city gates and find a place. If you want to go outside town and pray, you can do that. And so that's what's happening here. There is no synagogue in this place, in this Roman colony. So Paul goes to the next best place. He says, let's go find a riverside. Often they would use bodies of water for ritual cleansing and whatnot. And so he finds this place, and he's looking for anybody that he could give a message of God's grace through the Messiah. Verse 14. There was a woman there in particular named Lydia. Many of you know this story from the city of Thyatira. That is a city on the east side of the Aegean Sea there. Uh, is a city well-known for its production of fine linens and dyes. And look at what she does, by the way. She is a seller of purple fabrics, a very expensive fabric and a very expensive color of fabric, Hard hard to get a hold of. She was also, the author notes, a worshiper of God. Most indications, uh, most scholars believe that she was not a Jew, but she was a Gentile, but she was converted at some point, probably back in Thyatira, probably back under the kingdom of Lydia, that she was converted to the Jewish religion. And so she was at least a worshiper of Yahweh, although she was not a Jew by birth. That's what it means here when it says she was a worshiper of Paul's God. And she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken By Paul. We'll not spend much time on that, but it's a great picture of evangelism here in a very short verse. Verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, apparently she went back to her family. That would include not only her immediate family, but her servants and her servants' children. Uh, Apparently she went back to them and communicated what she had heard. And when she went back to her household and they had been baptized, she urged us, that being Paul and his cohorts, his delegates, She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Most likely, she was a pretty well-off lady. And so she invited Paul and and his uh, representatives to come back and spend time. She uh, She was following through on the hospitality. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Now, let me stop for just a moment. Don't lose as we're going through this. These are the people that he'd be writing the book of Philippians to when we jump in next week. All right, So get a flavor, get a tone of this place and these people. Don't lose focus. And she prevailed upon us, he says, verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune teller. So we're going to go from from one encounter to, another encounter. In this account, you're going to see three people come to the Lord, all famous stories. The first one, affluent Lydia. And now we're going to find a not so affluent uh, demon possessed girl who's being used by her masters to divine all kinds of information for the locals so that they might profit. She was essentially essentially at the uh, mercy of the spirit that had uh, indwelled her. And uh, her master, her owner, uh, was using that, uh, that spirit to read fortunes, hear a word from the afterworld, hear a word from whatever divine. And so whatever she would say, people would pay because they thought what she said came from the other side, if you will. And so she was being used for that purpose. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. This is a great verse. Apparently, she was following Paul and Luke and and probably Timothy and she, Epaphroditus. She was following these guys around, and they were trying to look for people to share the gospel with, etc. And she's used to to spewing words uh, from whatever divine, whatever demon is possessing her. Uh, she's she's used to just saying whatever they say, and the demons apparently recognize what these guys are doing and she's following them around town imagine this yelling who these people are and what they're doing did you see what she says following after paul she kept crying out these men are bond servants of the most high god who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation she did this for many days and then paul finally breaks down you just you just get the picture of him just looking around finally and saying i've got to do something about this girl and he turns around and look at what he does I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her, not very elaborate, is it? not very elaborate uh, he doesn 't you know call this grand prayer meeting and uh, et cetera He just turns around annoyed. the passage says, in the name of Jesus demon, get out of this girl she 's driving me nuts, and what happens and it came out that very moment, another great story, verse nineteen, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone. Don't miss that. Her owners now, her masters, they saw that their hope of profit. There's no more demon in this girl to spew out information to people who might pay for this information. Make us money, therefore. The demon's gone. The money's gone. They don't like that. Look at what happens. When their masters saw their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Now, Paul and Silas just minding their own business, doing their thing. They deal with the situation as it comes up. Never expected they were going to get hauled in before the authorities. But look at what happens. Here they are before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men, this is is the master of the demon-possessed girl speaking here. These men are throwing our city into confusion. Throwing our city into confusion, and look at look at what they say about Paul and Silas. Look at their indictment. Being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe. Being Romans, it said that on an arch approaching the city of Philippi, there was an inscription that said to declare to everyone, uh, essentially, you worship, you worship the God of Rome, you worship the god that Rome tells you to worship at any particular time, depending on who the leader of Rome is at the time, you worship that god, you leave all the other gods outside. And so when this guy starts to lose his money, what does he do? He finds a way to indict Paul and Silas before the authorities. It has nothing to do it has nothing to do with what they've actually done. But he uses whatever he wants to use. Isn't that often true of how it works against Christianity for us? Yeah. Another great story. And so these men get drug in based on some some side law here. uh, He has them brought in. And verse 22 says, The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them. That's not that they tore their own robes off. They tore the robes off Paul and Cyrus. Often they would leave them uh, bare naked in front of the whole gathering. Tore the robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. They caned these men. Brought up on some ridiculous charges. Didn't expect to be there 10 minutes ago. And now they're getting beat with rods, head to toe, by guys who this was their profession. Now, if you were a Jew and you were to be uh, beat with rods, you were to be disciplined for whatever reason, It said that you could get no more than 40 lashes. Most of the time, uh, for prudence sake, they would stop at 39 there was no such rule like that in Rome. In other places, Paul says that they would give them an exorbitant number of lashes. And so you can imagine he was completely naked, he and Silas, and they're being beaten essentially with canes by professional cane slingers more than any Jew would be accustomed to the discipline of when they had struck them with many blows they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to guard them securely and we go into another well known story right remember don't miss this is this is the people this is the place to which philippians would be written when they had struck them with many blows they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to guard them securely and he having received such a command threw them into the inner prison I mean, he threw them in the bottom, the basement of the dungeon, and fastened their feet in the stocks. These were two large, uh, sort of like yokes. They would put one piece of wood, one timber underneath their legs, and there was a, there was a sort of a half circle notched out for the legs, and they weren't close together. They were, they were awkwardly, widely spread apart, and they would, they would fashion another piece of wood to the top, so that they would be locked in these stocks. Oftentimes this would be done with their hands as well. But they had to carry around in this odd position. They had to sit in this odd, uh, awkward position locked in these wooden stocks. Just to give you a picture. After, mind you, being beaten. Probably still naked at this point. And he, having received, that's the jailer, verse 24, having received such a command, threw them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks, verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Mind you, no prisoner would have ever expected to hear these kind of songs coming from the dungeon below the dungeon. From a couple guys that were beat to the extent that they were beat and locked in the stocks who thought they were just minding their own business probably just hours ago. And instead of hearing cursing and crying coming from the dungeon, what do they hear? They hear hymns of praise to God. Verse 26, And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened... You get the picture that the jailers kind of leaned up against the door like Barney Fife and he, you know, had fallen asleep on his post. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Let me tell you why he's going to do this. If you were put in charge of a prisoner as a Roman centurion and you lost your prisoner, you have to pay their penalty. You have to often pay their penalty with your own life. And so when he wakes up after this great earthquake, which is uh, by inference prompted by their praises. When he wakes up and he sees the doors are open, uh, he doesn't even he doesn't even take the time to check because why would anybody hang out if the door is open? He draws his sword and he's going to kill himself. Why? Because he probably thinks I'm going to put myself out of my misery fairly quickly here, lest I go and I be caned and I have to go through the same process and they kill me. Look what happens. You know the story. But Paul, verse 28, cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourselves, for we are all here. <laughs> uh, lots of questions you could ask yourself there. And number one, why in the world, Paul, are you still there? Uh, number two, how did he even know what the jailer was doing from the dungeon? you got to imagine that the Lord had prompted Paul in all his activity here. Verse 29, and he called for lights and rushed in because they were in... In the dark. Another indication that Paul wasn't watching this jailer. And the jailer rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Cyrus. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You get the idea that Paul went into the gospel. Another great story. Look at the impact it had on this Philippian jailer's Family, Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. This jailer took them home, which wasn't altogether out of the ordinary. Again, he could take them home if he wanted, but if they escape, it's on him. But now being saved, he takes them home. He washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized and he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now, when the day came, apparently they spent the night at this guy's house. Now, when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. He's excited. After all this earthquake and whatnot, the leaders say, you know what? Let these guys go. And the jailer says, Paul, Silas, you can go. Another odd response here by Paul. But Paul, verse 37, said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. He says, let's evaluate the situation here for a second. They beat us in public, bare naked, without any sort of public hearing. A privilege, mind you, of every citizen to have a public hearing, even in the day of Rome, specifically as a Roman colony, specifically that Paul and Silas were indeed Roman citizens themselves, being born Roman citizens, uh, they enjoyed at least a public hearing. They didn't get that. There was also a law against scourging any Roman citizen, and we know they didn't keep to that one. Uh, I asked the question, I wonder if Paul or Silas said anything about being Roman citizens while they were being beaten. Well, they said, let them go. The jailer says, you can go. But Paul said, they've beaten us in public without trial. Men who are, by the way, Romans. And have thrown us into prison. And now, are they sending us away secretly? Paul says, I'm not going to let that happen. We've been through too much. No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. And so they wanted an official escort, sort of an official apology to Roman citizens. Most scholars believe that Paul was thinking ahead for the Philippian church as well. That by doing this, he would set in the minds of the community and the chief magistrates how future believers ought to be treated. So the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. These guys were Romans? And we didn't give them a public hearing? And we beat them? And we threw them under the jail? And now I've got to go and escort them out? And they came and appealed to them. That's the magistrates. Came and appealed to Paul and Silas. My, how circumstances have changed. And when they had brought them out, They kept begging them. Hey, would you guys just go on and leave? (laughs) Uh, We had some serious mistakes happen here. It would just be best for all of us if you guys just take off. Well, verse 40. Paul and Silas went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. They go back to their first convert, by the way. First European convert. And when they saw the brethren... When they visited with the saints, who in just their short time had been born again, once they had visited with the brethren, they encouraged them, and they departed. And in chapter 17, they're on their next leg of the trip. Now, here's what I want you to do. Here's your homework before next time. Start wide. We've answered some of these broad questions. Where, who are the Philippians? Where is it? What kind of people are they? What kind of town is this? You've gotten a little bit of a glimpse of that through Acts 16, okay? We've let Scripture teach us about Scripture here. Always a good idea. Uh, Here's the next step for you. Sometime before next week, at least twice, find the book of Philippians in your New Testament and read through it in its entirety in one sitting. Don't worry, it's only four short chapters. You can handle it. If I can handle it, you can handle it sometime during the next week before next sunday before we jump into the actual text read through it in its entirety i want you to i want you to walk before the mona lisa okay and just see it don't look for too many details just enjoy it at face value read it as a letter a personal letter from the guy who went to this place that we've read about shared the gospel with some people saw some people converted saw a church started Grassroots got thrown in jail, got thrown under the jail, was beaten in this place, uh, gets out through some odd circumstances, to say the least, comes out, encourages the brethren, and moves on to the next place. So, with that information, with those big picture chunks, just take a broad look at the book itself. At least twice, find a time where you can sit down and read from chapter 1, verse 1 to all the way at the end of the book of Philippians. Read the entire letter as a personal letter from the Apostle Paul who knew the Philippians and knew the town personally. A personal letter to the brand new saints in Philippi. All right. Let me give you just a little bit of a... uh, a glimpse in chapter 1 alone, Christ is mentioned 18 times in chapter 1 alone. By your second reading, you're going to start to grasp a little tone. You're going to start to grasp a little bit of theme or overall purpose in the letter. And then starting next week, we're going to, we're going to go through it in some larger chunks. We're going to find that tone. We're going to find that theme. We're going to find the purpose And then in the end, we're going to come back and we're going to fill in some of the details. Amen? All right, hang on. A few short weeks, you can have Philippians in your heart. Let's pray.